42 as we begin. And let's pray before we get started. Lord, thank you so much for, um, thank you for your son who gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In your son, we have everything that we need. We even have the things that we don't need, we don't understand that we need yet. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you for your word that instructs us in righteousness and reveals to us where our hearts really stand. And I thank you that as you save us, you also sanctify and set us apart. And I pray this morning that as we open up your word, that it would, um, that it would, it, it would divide between the flesh and the spirit, that it would continue its work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, this morning, more than anything, we're submitting ourselves to what you would speak. And so we ask, Lord, we are coming expectantly to you. Would you speak to us through your word as we study it? In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to see what's been the culmination of what's been happening in the book of Genesis for quite a while. If you remember, we've looked at the life of Joseph, and we've seen that um, Joseph has experienced quite a bit of hardship. He's called by God in some form or fashion to be a deliverer, and yet what we find is that though his dreams have told him, by the grace of God, he's had dreams that are kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in his life, that eventually his brothers are going to bow down before him. And then another dream says that his brothers and even his uh, father and mother will bow down. And so what's interesting about that is that from this point that he has the dreams, his brothers don't bow down, but they actually hate him, and then they make plans to kill him. And in a strange turn of events, they don't kill him. Uh, Reuben and his brother Judah actually try to keep them from killing him, Uh, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And so it sounds like uh, the worst thing ever, and yet his life is spared and he is sent to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he becomes a slave to a man by the name of Potiphar. And then he's falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. And then he's thrown in prison. And then he comes into contact with a butler and a cupbearer, excuse me, a butler and um, a baker. And while he's there, he interprets their dreams because he has this gift from God. And so all that to say is he's been leading up to having a voice with the leader of the known world at the time, the Pharaoh. And as we find him in the courts of Pharaoh, Um, Pharaoh actually has a dream that Jacob is able to interpret. And so in the meantime, Joseph has a plan to deal with this famine that God has shown Pharaoh there's going to be a famine for seven years. There will be seven years of unprecedented plenty and then seven years of no bread, no growth, no farming produce. And as a result of that, the whole world is going to need what you're going to have because of the seven years of plenty. And so in this seven years of famine, it's not just affecting Egypt, but it's also affecting the rest of their nation and then the nations surrounding it, which just happened to include the nation of Canaan. 
And so in chapter 42, verse 1, it says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And you parents have done this with your children before. There's been a need. There's been them noticing the need or the problem. And then there's been an obvious solution. And you've looked at your kids and said, hey, go take care of this. And they stare at each other like their brains are disconnected from their bodies. Jacob was no different. He had more sons maybe than you do. But in this, he looks at his sons and sees the obvious solution And they all stare at each other like their brains are disconnected. But I think one of the reasons they're staring at each other is because their father has just said, huh, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. And they go, Egypt, wait a minute. That's where we sold our brother. He's supposed to be in Egypt. And and all of these things are coming back from the past. It's been about 12 or 13 years since they sold their younger brother as a slave. And so he said, indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. And this becomes prophetic. This verse is about them going down for grain. But in following chapters, they as a nation, a young start to a nation, will go down to Egypt so that they will live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And so, first question I have for you is why would God let his people experience a famine? These are people that he claims to love, right? He's foretelling that the whole world is going to experience a famine. And then the people that he has chosen to make his name famous through, he says, in you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And yet, here in the temporary, in the moment, It seems as though God has allowed his people to starve. Verse 1 through 2, grain's a basic staple. It'd be like going to the store. Uh, We need bread. Bread is a a standard source of food. Uh, Number two, it can also be stored longer than most foods. And number three, it's sometimes used as a bartering tool. Verse 2, the name Egypt must have brought back a very strong memory for these boys. Now, I want to point out something that's interesting to me. Egypt is synonymous with the world in the Bible. It's a picture of the strength of the world. It's a picture of the ways of the world. It's a picture of the flesh. And if you remember from Genesis chapter 12, um, the, the thing that was supposed to happen is that Abraham was called by God to be a nation. And what happens is that he... In a famine, in Genesis 12, is freaked out, and he takes his family to Egypt. And while he's there, he tells his wife, I want you to lie, and I want you to say that you're not actually my wife, that you're my sister, because I'm afraid that the Pharaoh will kill me so that 
he can take me as he can take you as his bride because you're really good looking. So not wanting to be killed, he told the Egyptian Pharaoh, I, this is my sister. And then because of that, it causes all kinds of trouble, trouble that you might not consider. In Genesis 12, God protects Sarah and makes sure that the, the Pharaoh is uncomfortable in this circumstance. And then Abraham gets his wife back. But when they leave Egypt, they don't leave without consequence. They leave with Hagar. Hagar is his servant, Abraham's, or excuse me, Sarah's servant. And because of that, they end up getting tempted to try to help God out in producing a child, and they create Ishmael. Uh, and we see the fallout from that to this day. Ishmael is, is the Muslim nation. He, there are descendants of Ishmael, and so you have Ishmael and Isaac fighting each other for this land that Isaac has been given. But all that to be said, I wonder if some of their staring at each other is, hey, wait a minute, uh, we kind of know what's happened in our family history. Maybe we shouldn't go to Egypt during the time of a famine. Maybe this is a place where we shouldn't be heading. And yet what we know from the long run of Genesis is this is God's plan. God's plan was for them to go down to Egypt and to not only get food so they would survive, but also so when they go down to Egypt, they'll be reconciled to their brother, Joseph, who is there for God's purpose. He's there on purpose, and he's there for God's purpose. And so verse 3 through 4, we see he's sending all of them except for Benjamin, the youngest, because if you remember, his favorite wife, Rachel, has already passed away. And her son, Joseph, has already been, in his mind, dead. And so he's holding on to this one last son of, of, Joseph, or excuse me, of Rachel, which is Benjamin. And if you remember, as she died in childbirth, she was going to name him son of my sorrow. And, and then Jacob names him son of my strength. And so Jacob's holding back Benjamin because of fear. And so, verse 6, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people of the land, sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? He starts to interrogate them, and they said, We come from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and he said to them, You are spies. He starts to accuse them. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're simply here because we're beggars. We don't have any food. We're coming to the one source. We are all one man's sons, they continue. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you've come to seek the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And then there's one that's no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. 
by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall come you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. And that's the point. Joseph is testing his brothers to see if there's any truth in them. He's interrogating them. He's putting them in a tight situation. He wants to see if they he, he he wants to see if they're going to lash out, if they're going to leave one of their brothers hanging. He's trying to see if these men have changed or if they're still the same younger brother, older brothers. So he says, send one of you and let him bring your brother. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. I'm going to test and see whether you are really who you say you are. So he put them all together in prison for three days. And then Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. He gives them a second alternative. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So it's been 12 years since he was sold. And he had seen his brothers. In the past, it was he who was sold, but now it's he who does the selling. He's selling grain. He's giving them life when they took his. Verse 6 through 7, his brothers bow down before him and notice that they don't recognize him. Now, it's only been 13 years. I don't know about you guys, but he's not in the time where I think he was losing hair, although I did at that age, so maybe that is the case. But here what we see is that, remember, Pharaoh gave him a new outfit. He renamed him. And uh, he also spoke through an interpreter, we'll find out in verse 23. So his Egyptian clothing style. And if you've seen the history books, while I don't agree with a lot of what we teach about history, what I do agree with is the style of clothing. Egyptian men wore makeup. And so many scholars believe that he actually had the eyeliner of Pharaoh and that he, he looked very much like an Egyptian instead of a Hebrew. And so with that being the size or the, the, what happened, also he's concealing his identity because he wants to see if they've changed. He's not going to come out with the truth right away and go, oh, by the way, I'm your brother. Gotcha. Instead, he's waiting with wisdom because he doesn't want them to act like they've changed. He wants to see if they actually have changed. Uh, Verse 9, he's doing all this because the Lord brings to remembrance his dream. So he holds back the, I told you you'd bow down to me. Remember in his dream that all of his brothers bowed down to him, not just some of them. Who's not there? Benjamin. So this isn't the fulfillment of the prophetic dream he had. Verse 10 through 13, they testify. We're not spies, but what do they call themselves? We're here as your servants. They're humbling themselves. They need food, but they're also going to pay for it. We're honest men. Now, Joseph is going to have a little bit of a check in his spirit and go, yeah, sure. What'd you tell dad you did to me? 
And so we're not on, we're, we're honest men. We're not only servants, but we, we humble ourselves before you. We're your servants. Verse 14 through 20, Joseph begins accusing them. Then he imprisons them. And then he tells them to bring Benjamin. It's interesting to me, they're, they're reaping what they've sown. Uh, they, they accused Joseph. Um, or, or Joseph's been accused because of their actions. Uh, he's been imprisoned because of them. And now they're receiving the same treatment. But why? Again, he's trying to fulfill this prophecy. He, the 12 stars are going to bow down to him. And I think he also wants Benjamin to come back because he just misses him. He hasn't seen him in forever. And he probably wonders, I wonder how they're treating my younger brother. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. I need my next slide. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them, and he wept. He wept. And then he returned to them again, and he talked with them, and he took Simeon from them, and he bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? And so... Verse 21 through 22 is interesting to, to me because notice that no matter what happens to them in this section, their response is, oh no, we've been found out. Have you ever been guilty of something and then covered it up? And then no matter what, your guilty conscience just beats on you. People could do nice things to you and you get defensive, Maybe that's just me. Maybe none of you have ever been guilty of something and then tried to cover it up. I, I don't know about you guys, but this, this section really nailed me because for years and years and years, a big, fat liar was I. I spent my time telling stories to make myself look good in order that I, I wouldn't have to deal with who I really was and be honest. Now, growing up, I was taught that, that telling the truth was always the best policy. But it wasn't until I became a Christ follower that I realized that that meant even when nobody was looking. And, and so what happens here is these men have done something horrendous, terrible. Uh, we would go to jail for this, hopefully, 
to sell your brother into slavery and then to go back and tell dad, oh, uh, I think a wild animal got him. Here's this cloak covered in blood. And in the meantime, it was all a scheme to just get rid of somebody that they didn't like because he said that, that one day they would serve him. But what's interesting is that 12 years later, 12, it's still on the forefront of their minds. And so here they are, they're being sent back. And then as they're being sent back, they open up their sacks and they find money and go, oh no, we're we're paying for what we've done in the past. And in the meantime, I believe what Joseph is doing is just trying to bless them. Hey, you don't have to pay. Your money's no good here. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. But look what they say. They say, what is God doing to us? And all the time, and I've heard Christians even say this. They've said, what has God done to me? Or, man, I'm cursed. When in reality, their own conscience is what is condemning them. And our own consciences condemn us. We carry around things that we've never repented of or confessed. And so because of that, we see our eyes see things through the lens of a unclear conscience. And if you've ever had dirty glasses and you try to look through them, things are all messed up. You can't see clearly. But when your glasses are clean, when God has cleansed your heart because you've confessed your sin and repented of it, Then all of a sudden, God removes the blinders, he cleans your glasses, and then you see life through the proper perspective. But when sin's not been dealt with, we are blind to reality. We have a marred perspective on things. Uh, And what's interesting is if you turn to Proverbs, in chapter 21, verse 13, That's not the right reference. That's all right. I'm going to read it. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. These men shut their ear to the cry of Joseph. And they themselves, because of that, are are feeling disconnected from God. They're feeling as though their heart's cry is not being heard. Twelve years after the incident, an adversity strikes condemnation in their hearts about the major sin that, that they committed uh, and that they thought was hidden. Uh, verse 23 through 24, 12 years of adversity, and Joseph, notice, he's still soft-hearted towards his brothers. When he's harsh with them, he, he has to run to another room and cry because he doesn't want to treat his brothers that way because he knows what it's like to be treated that way himself. And then also, Uh, Verse 25 through 28, Joseph is actively blessing those who have been his enemies. Have you ever had somebody sin against you, Uh, whether you thought it was on purpose or on accident? It's hard to bless them in return. Joseph pays them back for the grain that they came to buy. And because of their guilt, they can only see his blessing as a curse from God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul's writing to the Roman Christians there. And in verse 17, he says this. Now, this is Paul. He's not speaking from an ivory tower. He knows what it's like to be wrongfully accused. He knows what it's like to be arrested for 
simply proclaiming the truth. And yet what he says in Romans 12, verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. All. The Greek means all. Uh, people that agree with you, people that disagree with you, people that serve the same God you do, people that are actively killing the people that you are brothers and sisters with, in Christ with. Bless those who curse you. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, verse 19, but instead give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is the Lord's. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, that sounds like a negative thing, right? Uh, that sounds like also a positive thing. Uh, to love your enemies, heap coals of fire on his head. Now, for the conscience that's been seared, for the person that's hard, uh, they need some fire on their head. They need to be softened. They need to be changed. And if you love your enemy, if you simply do that with no words, someone that knows they've wronged you, if you do something to bless them, they are going to, whether they vocalize it or not, go, why'd you do that for me? Or in the case of Joseph's brothers here, they're going to go, God, why are you cursing me? They're going to see the blessing as a curse. It's going to humble them. It's going to break them, possibly. And so God's instruction and then Joseph's action as he's loving his enemies. It just so happens to be that his enemies are those who he grew up with in his own household. And that's hard. And I will make the statement that many times loving the enemies that are supposed to be your family can be even harder than loving people you don't know that hate you. It's, it's extremely hard. Family is extremely hard. And, and so uh, continuing on in verse 29, says, then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan. They're going back home. And they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke very roughly to us, and he took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We're honest men. We're not spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. <clears throat> Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you're honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Oh no, we've stolen. We didn't mean to, but for some reason, we still have our money. 
Verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me, speaking to his sons. Joseph is no more. Now Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And so what's brought them to Egypt in the first place was not to go find Joseph. It was to go get food, something they needed. That's why God allowed his people to see famine. But then Jacob, his response is, everything is against me. And in the meantime, what he doesn't realize that is in God's plan to actually answer the heart cry he has. He longs for Joseph. He longs even now for Simeon. He wants to protect Benjamin. And all of those things will be fulfilled if he just submits to these, what seem to be, harsh circumstances. But I want to take a minute and express to you something that oftentimes these guys don't have the benefit of knowing what the rest of this passage has to say. Uh, Joseph's in a spot, or Jacob's in a spot, where all he can see is all of the trials. All he can see is all of the loss. All he can see is what he thinks is going to happen if all of these things come to pass. And so I want to read something that I stole from someone else, because that's the best way to teach the Bible, right? I want to speak to you some if statements. If Joseph's family wasn't messed up and weird, some of you can relate to that, some of you won't admit to that, but if Joseph's family wasn't messed up and weird, his brothers would never have sold him as a slave. If Joseph's brothers never sold him as a slave, then Joseph would never have gone to Egypt. If Joseph never went to Egypt, he would never have been sold to Potiphar. If Joseph was never sold to Potiphar, then Potiphar's wife would never have falsely accused him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accused Joseph of rape, then Joseph would never have been put in prison. If Joseph was never put in prison, he would have never met the baker and butler of Pharaoh. If Joseph never met the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he would never have interpreted their dreams. If Joseph never interpreted their dreams, he would never have interpreted Pharaoh's dream. If Joseph never interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he never would have become prime minister, second in Egypt only to Pharaoh. If Joseph never became prime minister, he never would have wisely prepared for the terrible famine that was to come. If Joseph never wisely prepared for the terrible famine, then his family back in Canaan would have died in the famine. And you might say, what does this have to do with me? I'm glad you asked. If Joseph's family came back in Canaan, died in the famine, then the Messiah would not have come from a dead family. If the Messiah did not come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then we are all dead in our sins and without hope in this world. There's no resurrection. Folks, this is it. You better go motley crew and live it up because this is the only heaven you'll ever experience. But none of those if statements happened. And all of those things did happen. Terrible things happened to Joseph. Terrible things happen to Jesus. Why would God allow his people to experience famine? 
to save the whole world? Why does God allow his only son to experience all of the things that he experienced, which were worse than Joseph because Joseph wasn't sinless and Jesus was? It's not fair. He didn't deserve any of it. And yet we're grateful for God's great and wise plan. And so, uh, verse 37, Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Speaking of keeping Benjamin safe. Because if they don't take Benjamin to Egypt, they don't get no more food. And then you and I don't get salvation. We just went over that. So they got to go back. But Reuben speaks up and says to his father, If you can kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So verse 29 through 34, they give their dad the rundown. They, here's what happened on the trip. Verse 35, they find that all their money is still with them, except they were innocent of trickery this time. Verse 36, Jacob responds, all these things are against me. We find that Jacob is very nearsighted here because this is how he'll be led to see his son that he longs for. God's always working even when we don't see it, even when we can't see it by our limited perspective. Verse 37, Reuben steps up. Now, this is important. Remember, when they were going to sell Joseph into slavery, Reuben actually tried to keep it from happening. He says, no, no, don't kill him. Just put him down in this pit, planning to come back and save him. He, he does this to save Simeon and get more food. He's offering up the life of his sons as a guarantee to protect Benjamin's life. Verse 38, Jacob would rather lose Simeon, whom he knows is not dead, than lose Benjamin. Uh, Even Jacob, as a father, played favorites. But then, verse 38. Excuse me, chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, as if it wasn't already. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. He's more interested in his belly than he is in saving his own son. But Judah spoke to him, saying, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you won't send him, we're not going. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? Why did you tell him the truth? Little does Israel know that this is actually their new life. They're they're truth tellers now. They weren't before. Uh, We told the truth because we we think that we've gotten ourselves into trouble in the past because we lied. But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Uh, Dad, (laughs) this man asked about you. And, And then he asked us, have you another brother? 
And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down and prove it? <laughs> Jacob's motivated to send to Egypt for more food. And meanwhile, he's, he doesn't care so much for his own son, it seems. And I want to point this out. A life, and here we see it in Jacob, a life that's controlled by fear and saving its own skin will keep others locked up at the same time. If you're afraid of dealing with your own sin, if you're afraid of what things might cause discomfort to you, then your life is not going to be used by God to set other people free. If Jacob was willing to be uncomfortable and to send his son, knowing that bad things could happen, it means that he could save his son. It means that they could all live and have grain. You'll keep other people locked up if you'll only think about yourself. Verse 3 through 5, Judah responds like Reuben did. He said, this sounds great, but we must take Benjamin. I'll take him. I'll guarantee he comes back safe. And then Jacob, why didn't you think about how your responses would affect me? Jacob can only see himself. Verse 7, we answered honestly, how could we know the truth would lead to this? By the way, Jesus said that the truth will set you free. And it always does, but there's always a temptation to withhold it because it seems like if you tell the truth, it'll actually make things worse. It always seems harder, and it is harder, to tell the truth, but you don't know how much good can come out of it until you do it. It takes faith. It takes faith to tell the truth. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have already returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was just an oversight." Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother, Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So he says, really, what's interesting here is he says, okay, so you're going to go back. And I don't want to lose Benjamin. And if I can get my son back, that'd be good. Um, so here's what I want you to do. Take a bunch of gifts. Try to appease this leader. Um, take back the money that we owe for the food we already got. Take double the money. Do all that we can to make sure we're, we're doing everything according to every I dotted and every T crossed. And then he says, um, take your brother also and arise. Take Benjamin. Okay, I'm willing now. And then he says in verse 14, at the end of it all, 
Jacob's doing everything he can to appease this leader, and then he brings God into the equation, which was really the only thing he needed to do in the first place. He says, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man, and may he release your brother and Benjamin. And then, at this point, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. What's interesting is he's preparing, but he's also surrendering. Jacob surrenders here because he doesn't have any other option. I think oftentimes we're unwilling to surrender because we we still think we have control. Control is something we don't like giving up. Maybe you're different than me, but I like to control my circumstances. I like to control my life. I like to be able to say how much I give or how much I don't. But God's called us to surrender everything to him, not just some things. I've heard it said that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not really your Lord at all. But Jacob surrenders because he doesn't have any other option. He's backed into a corner. He's surrendering to circumstances. He's surrendering to this mean leader. He's surrendering to the fact that he doesn't have any resources. Um, And surrendering to circumstances can seem like death because it feels like you're not surrendering to God, but you're actually surrendering to everybody else. But surrendering to the God who placed you under these circumstances is actually where abundant life begins. If any of us learned anything in the year 2020, it's that we're not in control. And then many times it feels like the government is in control or that your family members are in control or that your boss is in control or your work conditions or how much money you have in the bank. All these things that we live in these circumstances day in and day out. And some of them we know we can't control, and many of them we're unwilling to admit that we can't control at all. But God's over those. He is in control of every minute detail. So God's not asking us to surrender to our boss. He's not asking us to surrender to the government. He's asking us to surrender to him who's over all of those things. Since losing Joseph, Jacob left the faith life and he started serving his fears, trying to protect and save himself from what he feared the most, death, right? But what we find out is that he couldn't even stop that. Trouble, pain, calamity come to everyone. Better to live trusting that Jesus will take care of the circumstances than trying to do it yourself and wasting your time and energy. Was Jacob able to keep himself from what he feared most? No. As a matter of fact, he started losing more sons. And so we continue with verse 15. We'll read through the end. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand, They arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home. Difference, right? All of a sudden, bringing Benjamin, instead of being treated like spies, treated like bad people, they're now going to be brought into Joseph's home. Does it sound familiar? 
because of our relationship with Jesus, we're no longer treated as lawbreakers, but because of our relationship with one son, coming with him to the father, we're now brought into the father's house. Isn't that wonderful? The key to the kingdom is the relationship with the son. But here we see, he says, take these men to my home, slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Sound like the prodigal son? Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that were brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. They can still only see a curse from these blessings. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack our money in full weight. So we, we've brought it back in our hand. We brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Settle down. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given your treasure in your sacks. Do you remember what they said when they opened their sacks and they all found their money? They said, what's God doing to us? They blamed God. Little did they know that they were speaking the truth. God had done it. The steward here says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Now, he was probably in cahoots with Joseph and the whole plan, but he's blaming God. God has blessed you. God has protected you. Settle down. Let God's peace wash over you. Don't be anxious. I had your money when you paid, is what he's saying. And then he brought Simeon out to them, out of the prison. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house. He gave them water, and they washed their feet. And he gave their donkeys feed. You noticing this? They're getting treated no longer like servants. They're getting treated like family by Joseph and his servants. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house. They bowed down before him to the earth. And then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. He blesses Benjamin. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste. He sought somewhere to weep and he went into his chamber and he wept. And then he washed his face and he came out. He restrained himself and he said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself, meaning Joseph, and them by themselves. Uh, Egyptians would not eat with Hebrew people. 
they were they were cattle farmers they were goat herders they 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 saw them as an abomination uh, so they wouldn't eat at the same table this was custom because the egyptians could not eat food with the hebrews for that is an abomination to the egyptians i should have just read it it's right there so they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright the youngest according to his youth and the men looked in astonishment at one another they were seated at the table according to family uh, you know stature he set them in the order that they were his brothers then he took servings to them from before him they served these men from joseph's table that wouldn't happen you don't share the same food as somebody else as a matter of fact when jesus broke bread and he gave it to his disciples he said take eat of this right to share bread is to share life. To share bread is to share the source of life. If I eat a piece of bread and I give you a piece of bread, then we're both sustained by the same loaf. That makes us one. That makes us family. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. And here, that's what Joseph is doing with his brothers. And so I have for you, Joseph's servant receives them. He blessed them, Joseph did, but they were still fearing judgment. And then the servant says in verse 23, beast be with you. Don't be afraid. God is for you. Verse 24 through 30, they are being served as if they are family. And yet they continue to try and earn favor. Here's a gift. Here's some money. Here's this. Here's that. If you invited me over to your home and I tried to pay you before I left for the meal, you'd be insulted, right? And yet what we see here is the same thing that happens to those who don't know the Lord and to those who do know the Lord. God has invited us in through his son. He's already treating us like family. And we still try to earn his favor, favor by proving how good we are or offering. And, and we don't any longer have to live trying to earn God's favor. Jesus did that for us. Now we get to act as though we are members of the household. Now we get to come in. Don't serve other people because you feel like you have to. Now serve because you know where all the plates are in the kitchen, because you know where the food is in the cupboard. Live in the household of God and serve like you you live there. (laughs) Because that's the reality, folks. We don't any longer have a, a get to or a, a have to relationship with God. We don't have to appease him. Now we are members of the household. Now we come in and we're being perfected by his love and we get to know what the meal is coming up. We get to be a part of serving the meal to the body of Christ. We get to invite other people over because we're no longer the, the guests. Now we're the family. And so when we say invite people to church, it's not invite them to, you know, God's church. We're saying invite them over because this is your house. This is God's kingdom, but we're a part of it. So Joseph's been treating them like family. He feeds them in his home. In the order of birth, he feeds them from his table. He even shows favoritism to the youngest. He's revealing his identity to them. You might say, because it's a meal, in small bites. How many of us are still trying to appease Jesus? 
Stop and take notice. He's already prepared a feast before you. He's treating you like family right now. I'm going to turn real quick to 1 John as we close. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Peace be with you. Because fear involves torment. We see Joseph's brothers are tormented by their guilt. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And we see that in Joseph. He's loving his brothers. He's treating them like family, even though they didn't treat him that way. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for Joseph and how we see Jesus. We see you in him. Father, I thank you for the life of Joseph that portrays Jesus so clearly. I thank you for the portion of his life that looked like death that prepared him for this reconciliation with his brothers. I thank you, Lord, for the the perfect picture that we see that we no longer have to try to come and approach our king with favors or with works or with stuff. Lord, you don't make us give you stuff. You give us stuff, and we have the freedom to offer up to you our bodies and our well-being and our gifts of service and our time and our money, not because we have to any longer, but because we want to laud you. We want to honor you. We want to bring you glory with our lives because of how much you first loved us. You're perfecting us in love. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd set us free from legalism. I pray that you'd set us free from thinking we're not worthy. Apart from you, we're not worthy. But because we are in you, you've made us worthy. And now we're accepted in the beloved. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for making us new. And thank you that you're so patient with us. Like the brothers, you continue to show them little by little. And you continue to show us little by little that you're not who we once thought you were. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to show us more. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your patience, and we pray that you'd grow us and expand our understanding of who you are and help us to serve you as if we understand who you are so that others will be accepted as well and see the goodness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.